anyone need a Bible, Proverbs chapter 1, we'll be picking up where we left off, uh, starting verse 20, just reading verses 20 through 33, uh, Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 20, it says, wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates of the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you, because I have called, and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel, and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, and they will, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge, and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel, and despise my every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way, and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your spirit now to uh, minister by your word, that uh, each and every ear, each and every heart would hear that which you in your sovereignty and your providence desire us to hear. And Lord, even as we see in this text, that we wouldn't just be those that hear wisdom, but that receive it to apply it, uh, to embrace it, to accept the grace that you've given, that we would walk in wisdom, that we would be corrected. Lord, we want to be teachable, correctable. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would just speak to each and every person here tonight. You know what we need. And Lord, I pray that we would be soft and our hearts would be soft uh, and Lord, we be strengthened and encouraged by all that you have laid out in your word for us to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, we uh, looked at this foundations of wisdom. And essentially, we looked at two things, uh, you know, what God wants us to know and what he wants us to avoid. And tonight, we want to look at what I've titled the imperative of wisdom. So we looked at you know, what to know, what to avoid, but it, it's kind of like this kind of ratchets up the urgency of wisdom in our life. Um, we have a, a nation that's really devoid of wisdom. Uh, we've got uh, intellectually smart people. We've got, there's a lot of smart people out there. We've got uh, great technology. We've got uh, companies that uh, make amazing products. We've got all kinds of people that are talented. But remember, God's never impressed by talent. It's hard to impress the one who created you. He's not impressed by our ingenuity. Uh, there's been amazing civilizations in the history of the world. You realize that, you know, I, I remember the one time I had to go to Las Vegas. The, the, one of the least favorite cities I had to ever visit uh, when I was in business. I had to go there once. And um, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it was, it, Vegas is like a testament to all the empires that God destroyed. They've got pyramids, they've got Roman stuff. I mean, every, every society that man looks up and says, 
wow, they were amazing people. God says they were idolatry, and, uh, or they were in love with idolatry. So God destroyed them. And then and Vegas has rebuilt the strip to look like a monument to all the great empires. Not all of them. They're, they're missing a few. But, uh, but the ones that people know the most. And um, it's not called Sin City for no reason. But God's not impressed by its lights and all the you know, amazing things, the Bellagio's fountain and all those things that you can see, or New York City, or uh, what you know, is happening. And you know, look at large cities like Burj uh, in Dubai where you know, these skyscrapers that have sprung up out of the desert. Uh, ingenuity, ability, intellect, talent, all of those things, um, you know, different measures given to different people. But wisdom, God's willing to give to anybody. Would you agree? I'm never going to be seven foot tall. I played basketball my whole life growing up. I, don't, I know I don't look tall enough to play basketball, but that was my sport. I was a point guard. And I always said, and I now know that I didn't know what I was talking about, but I always said if I was 6'4", I'd have made it to a much higher level of basketball. I probably wouldn't have, but I thought at that time I would. But God was never going to give me the height I wanted. He may not give you certain things you want, but he'll give you all the wisdom you're willing to accept. Isn't that great to know? He's not going to hold that back. The only one holding back wisdom is guess who? Us. He's willing to give us all the wisdom. The scriptures say if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. God will not liberally give you all the other things that maybe you think you need or I think I need, but he will give us wisdom liberally. He wants us to become more and more uh, like his son. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. He wants us to have the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to be equal to Jesus, but we can become a whole lot more like him. We're not going to be equal to God in wisdom, but we can uh, attain a lot more of his wisdom. And uh, there, really is, um, there really is a certain amount of wisdom that comes with age. Wouldn't you guys agree with that? I, I really look back and realize how dumb I was at 27, at 17. I know teenagers, they know everything. So if you really need to find something out, they can help you out. But uh, the longer you go, you really realize there's a certain amount of wisdom that God just kind of, with age, you realize, all right, that wasn't the smartest move I've ever made. I don't think I'll do that one again. But then there's the wisdom that God gives as we grow spiritually. And this is the kind of wisdom that God really wants to give. I mean, we will make more, uh, with time, we'll make better decisions about what we eat and how much stuff we can afford and all those things. And, and Proverbs addresses those things too. But specifically here, uh, Solomon's talking about the wisdom of really knowing the heart and mind of God. And that's what we want to look at tonight. Uh, starting in verse 20, first thing if you're taking notes, I've titled is wisdom's voice. Wisdom's voice. It says here that uh, wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Now, I want to say something, too, about this feminine aspect. It says she raises her voice. Um, you know, in the Bible, there is, there is a constant picture all throughout Scripture of the faithful woman and the adulterous woman. The faithful woman and the idolatrous woman. The faithful woman and the false, the faithful, true 
faith and the false faith. So you see in the book of Revelation, for example, a woman called Mystery Babylon. You ever heard that term? Mystery Babylon, what is the Mystery Babylon? Well, it is the false religious system of the world that traps people into believing that they have obtained the real article of faith when actually they have attained a counterfeit. So this false religious system is often personified as an immoral, adulterous woman full of idolatry, but then what do we see the true church portrayed? It is the clean bride of Christ. So you'll see this picture also in Proverbs, and it said, when it says this woman or this she cries out with a loud voice, it gives a human aspect to wisdom as if wisdom is the woman who's pure, the woman who's clean, that is speaking truth. The mother of Solomon would be a wise woman, right? The Proverbs 31 woman is the at the very end of the book, the wise woman. But you also have a loud immoral woman that is also referenced by Solomon, and that is the false religious system. The religious system that says you are your own God. You don't need God to tell you exactly what to do. All roads lead to heaven. All those kind of things. Those are the false proclamations. And we want to look at three things here. Uh, in this, in this uh, verse 20 and verse 20 uh, and 21. The first is a loud proclamation. She calls aloud outside. In Psalm 19, I read this a few weeks ago at our time of prayer, but it bears reading again. Um, if you go outside tonight, it's a clear night. It's going to be a beautiful night to look at stars later. Not a cloud, at least when I came in, there was not a cloud in the sky. Great night. For those of you who have telescopes, enjoy them. And this is what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now the psalmist writes, and this was David. This is Solomon's dad who wrote that. So Solomon wrote... Uh, most of uh, Proverbs, and David wrote what, what I just read from Psalm 19. So David said that when you look up to the heavens, it speaks of God's power. It speaks of God's creativity. It speaks that he holds the whole universe in hand. It speaks that he flung the stars out like it was no big deal. And he knows them all by name. And it speaks any language. It doesn't matter if you speak Mandarin, or if you speak Swahili, or if you speak Spanish, or whatever it may be, you look up, you see the same evidence that everybody else sees. And it speaks the knowledge of God. Now in Romans, then Paul takes this, and Paul also observes that creation is speaking in a very loud manner. Because Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 14 and 16, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 1, um, Paul speaks... And not 14 through 16. Let me just say, uh, let's look, take a look at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, because what may be known of God is manifest in, this is verse 18 and 19, chapter 1 of Romans, 
Uh, for God has shown it to him. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power, as Godhood, that they are without excuse. Paul's saying that you, know, you can look around the world and you see the evidence of God speaking in just creation alone. And then in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus tells the church, we are to go speak and proclaim Creation's already doing its part. The stars are doing their part. The trees are doing their part. I was reading in one psalm this morning, and before I went on a morning run, I, I was reading this psalm, and it talks about the birds in the tree. I can't remember which psalm I was in, but it said, the birds in the trees, they're singing. So I got on the run, and I heard birds everywhere because it's springtime. And I just think they're singing to God, and he says they're singing, so I assume he knows what he's talking about. And they're just, I don't know why, why even they do that. But they're testifying that the word of God is true. But then we are to testify, if we know the Lord, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Middle schools, your water cooler at work, your next door neighbor, the mechanic working on your car. We're to go and preach the gospel to share, to testify that these things are true. We're to proclaim. Jesus didn't say, uh, hey, just keep quiet until I get back. He said quite the opposite. He said, go into all the world and tell. So there's this loud proclamation. Wisdom, wisdom wants the world to know. Wisdom is also a picture of actually the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit wants the world to know that God is who he says he is, and we are who he says we are. Loud proclamation. The second thing in verse 20 and 21, verse 20 and 21 uh, she raised her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates of the city. The second thing in, this, in these first two verses, there's the loud proclamation, then there's also an open invitation. Notice that uh, the voice of wisdom is crying out in the open square, the concourses, the openings, the gates of the city. Pretty much anywhere that the message can be given, it's an open invitation. Jesus says at the very end of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, is a passage that I love. Um, he says, and let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus says the invitation is open to anybody. Doesn't matter how many sins you've committed in life. Doesn't matter if you used to curse God. Doesn't matter if you have for years said, I'm not interested. Anyone willing to come, the waters are free. It's an open invitation. When you, uh, when you speak to the gates of the city and you speak in the open concourse, you're going to reach people that have done all kinds of things. You're going to reach people that used to not be interested. You're going to reach people that formerly weren't wanting to hear it. But God wants this message to be an open invitation. The third thing in verses 20 and 21, it says, and she speaks her words. She speaks her words. It's to be a clear message. Not to be mumbling. God, God gives a very clear message, doesn't he? Uh, it, this is how clear we know it is. Jesus says you have to become as what? A little child. You don't have to speak theologically deep. 
You just have to speak clearly that anyone can understand you. A little child can understand it. It's a clear message. And the reason it's so clear is who it came from. I love Hebrews 1, 2. It says, uh, speaking of Jesus, has spoken in these last days to us by his son. And here's the really cool thing. Once Jesus has spoken, all we have to do is repeat what he says. You will never, nor will I ever make a more clear message than what he's already said. I wonder if I can perfect how he said that. No. And we sometimes worry, it's like, if I say the words of Jesus, I wonder if they'll understand. Oh, they'll actually understand at a deeper level because it'll pinprick the conscience. Whereas you and I, in our cogent arguments or ways that we can kind of come up with something, actually don't pinprick the conscience. Speak clearly, just repeat what he said. I uh, love, you know, I've shared this, it's been a couple of years, but when I shared a, uh, a Wednesday night, How to Witness from John chapter 3. It's one of the best books of the Bible. If you just study John chapter 3 and say, how can I use John chapter 3 to share the gospel with just about anybody? Um, it's a simple, simple book. You just point and say, have you ever heard the term born again? Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard it. Who do you think came up with that term? You Christians came up with it. Nope. We didn't come up with it. You ever heard of Jesus? He came up with it. The term had never been used by anyone in all of Scripture until Jesus arrives on the scene and uses the term born again. So then you can actually deflate that people say, you're born again. You mean those of us who listen to what Jesus has said and then follow it and you just take them through, say, this is what it said. You get to John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. All in that same chapter. Very clear message. Let's look at the next thing in, in, in verse 22. That was wisdom's voice. Let's look at the uh, next section, which I've titled Wisdom's Assessment. In verse 22, it says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity uh, for you scorners, uh, for the scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge? Now, this isn't, uh, this isn't simplicity in the sense that uh, Jesus would have us live simple lives in the sense that we're not trapped by all kinds of busyness of life, all kinds of stuff that we're piling up that we're not going to take anywhere but to the dump, dump one day. Uh, I was having this discussion. My, uh, my mother-in-law's with us and I was, uh, for a couple of days, and I was saying, you know, I, I've noticed now I'm 47, and one thing I've noticed is I've seen a lot of people now that had big, huge houses, and they get to be in their 50s, 60s, and they downsize. I'm like, all the stuff that we accumulate, that we eventually say, we've got to pack this down a lot smaller. I'm like, this is in the thousands and thousands of dollars. And they're like, why do we... I was reading an article just the other day about a young woman who decided to not buy one thing for a year, and let, except it was food. And she said, and she wasn't even a Christian, she said, the freedom I felt after a year was beyond my comprehension. I'm like, well, wait till you add that with getting saved. You get the double explosive power of freedom from sin plus freedom from materialism all at the same time. And just, uh, but that's not the simplicity. That's actually a good simplicity, that, that we actually would simplify our lives, that we'd simplify our calendars, that we simplify our time, simplify uh, uh, our budgets, so we really would be more freed up to go wherever Jesus sends us and do the thing that he wants us to do. That's a good simplicity, but this isn't what it's talking about. This simplicity 
uh, is those, again, we talked about the word simple last week, being naive, being ignorant, being really unlearned of the things that God would want us to know. Uh, God, (laughs) he doesn't want us to be in the dark. He wants us to have the light of his wisdom shining in. And so this was kind of a willful rejection of God wanting to grow us. I mean, how many, how many of you would want to stay the age of two forever? And God says, some people are willingly, even Christians, are willing to stay a five-year-old for the rest of their life, Christian speaking. I just want to stay a five-year-old. Why? Because I just, I can beat on my desk when I'm unhappy, or I can whine, or I can cry, or whatever. And God says, no, 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 I want you to grow, mature, move on, gain more of my understanding, that you would actually be able to teach other people how they can grow. This is a simple uh, ignorance that he's speaking of here. The first, uh, the first in this um, 22nd verse, three things again to look at here. How long will you love simplicity? In other words, how long will you avoid growing and knowing what God wants you to know? I mean, think about all the times that people ride. Let's say, let's say they know for certain because one time when they were a kid, their parents took them to church, and they actually felt conviction. You, many of you remember years ago, you went somewhere, you felt a little bit of conviction. And you know that if you go there, you'd probably get convicted again, but you'd probably learn what God wants you to know. So what do people do? They avoid it. They ride right by the building. Day after day, week after week, they ride straight by a place that they know would actually teach them what they really need, but they're happy not knowing what God wants them to know. It's just staying away. It's that feeling of what I don't know won't hurt me. What actually it really will hurt you to not know what God wants us to know. Or it's like this. What I don't know absolves me of any responsibility and any accountability. If I don't know it, you know, it's better to just do it and ask forgiveness later. That can work with some things, but not when you go stand before God at the end of the age. You want to ask for forgiveness now. So avoiding wisdom is the first thing if you're taking notes in verse 22 here of wisdom's assessment. Wisdom says there are a group of people that are avoiding wisdom. If you think wisdom, say the Holy Spirit would assess this. There are a group of people that are avoiding wisdom. Second, scorning wisdom. For scorners delight in their scorning. What does that mean? Um, That's mocking wisdom. This is the person that not only avoids wisdom, any conversation, that's the, per, the, the avoider at work, they know how to slip by any spiritual conversation. They're like a Jedi with this. You drop a softball, you think they're going to hit it, they smoothly go right around it and say, what are we having for lunch? Did I just say something? I thought I just asked you a spiritual question, but you, oh, what am I having for lunch? But the other one could be a mocker and say, you uptight, narrow-minded Christians. That's a different level. They're not just the avoider, they're the mocker. They say, yeah, Jesus is never coming back. You guys have been saying that for, you know, 3,000 years, 2,000 years. They don't, you know, they, we haven't been saying it for 3,000 years. Jesus has gone too. But again, they'll just kind of throw things out there. It's a mocking way of speaking. And the church, 
you can have some scorning too. It's not a mocking in a sense, but just a defiant resistance. Even in the body of Christ. People say, I don't have time for that. Jesus says, invest first in the kingdom, invest in being a disciple. I don't have time for that. That's for those of you that are super spiritual. Those of you that really take this stuff super serious. And the third here is hating wisdom. Now, that's another level. So you're turning up the heat. God says there's these levels of rejection. The third is hating wisdom. This is anger. This is vitriol. This is coming against God's word, attacking it, trying to remove and destroy it. Think communism, radical jihad, socialism, Satan himself. He hates wisdom. And then you have people that you know, join the satanic church or people that are uh, you know, like North Korea. They'll try to stamp out every bit of God's word, every single bit of it. Murder, execution, you know, you see in the Middle East, crucifixions, beheadings, hatred of God's word. It's not just mocking it, not just avoiding it, it's actually trying to stamp it out. Wisdom's assessment. So God is telling us, hey, in this world, you'll have certain levels of response to wisdom. It's good to know who you're dealing with, isn't it? Am I, just, just if you're having a conversation, am I dealing with an avoider, a mocker, or a hater? Now the word hater is taken in such a nonchalant word. Hate is going to hate all that stuff in America, right? But it, this hate is actually pretty serious. So just understand who you're talking with, who you're dealing with. Because that way you can pray while you're talking to them. Lord, I think that, I think that this person really is mocking your word. How do I say something that actually connects at the conscience? Wisdom's assessment. Let's look at the next thing. Wisdom's promise. Wisdom's promise. Um, we like to have some promises from God, don't we? Scriptures say all the promises of God are yes and amen. In the 23rd verse, we see a passage that almost looks very New Testament-like. Listen to the words. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Sounds like something Jesus would say, doesn't it? Well, he is the whole word of God, so... This is him too, in his pre-incarnation, if you will. It is certainly the Holy Spirit. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I'll pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Back when we were in our Ezekiel study, going to go several months back, we were in the 18th chapter. If you uh, remember this passage, in Ezekiel 18.32, it says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. God's desire is people would turn and live. I haven't said it in a while, but I, I did mention it to um, when I was talking to this gentleman that we had known each other, or we'd known each other 25 years ago, and we were talking yesterday, and I said, and I was, he was asking me about how I came to be a pastor and everything, and I said, you know, when I was still working in business, I said, I, I had this one coworker. I love him dearly. Uh, every now and then we'll still have lunch together. Uh, but he always said to me, and I've, you guys have heard me say it, on Monday morning, not every Monday, but about every other Monday, he would say, did you send anyone to hell this weekend? Because I was preaching and working uh, in business at the same time. And I would always tell him with a smile because it was this ongoing Laurel and Hardy thing that we had. 
I can't send them to hell. I can only tell them how to not go there. Again and again, we would play this out. But here's the thing. I know that that plays out still deep in the recess of the mind because I'm speaking truth. God's word is quick and powerful. It is a true 100% from God statement that God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That he wants to take people away from the careening car headed over the cliff into hell. Not cliff, cliff. There's no T on the end of cliff, just so you know. But salvation is the first thing that God wants to give if we turn at his rebuke, if we hear his rebuke. But not only that, he wants us to start finally living. Not just salvation, which is by far the most important, but to, to start living. Christian, I hope you're experiencing the life from God that he wants you to be living and he wants to give you. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You know, he said in John 15, I've come that your joy might be full. Do you know how many Christians lack joy today? Thousands upon millions. Because they're still trying to find joy in the same place the world is. At Target. <laughs> right? Pier 1. Haley Pontiac and whatever else is out there, you know? Those things aren't wrong when you need it, but I mean, that's where people are really trying to find joy. I'm finding, uh, you know, here's what I'm finding more and more in my, my life. The more I turn my eyes, or the more I turn my eyes and heart to Jesus, not just turn it at rebuke, the more I turn my eyes, the Bible says, fix your eyes upon him. The more I turn my eyes and heart to him, the more alive I feel, the more satisfied I feel. And the more rest I find in my soul. Jesus said, I'll give you rest for your soul. You, can't, you know you can't buy rest for your soul? You can't, you can't buy it, and no one can buy it for you. I said, well, I bet you if I got the biggest bonus I ever got, it, I, I could buy it. No, people that win the lottery are depressed and broken, divorced in a couple of years. It's unbelievable when they do the studies. You're like, how is this possible? Jesus said, I'm the only one that can give that. You can, you can keep digging and digging and digging. It's not just salvation. He wants to give us life. With some of Jesus' healings and salvation, you know what he would turn and say to the person? Go in peace. That's a simple statement, go in peace. But when Jesus says it, it carries a ton of weight. When he says go in peace, you really can. Um, The rebuke of God, the rebuke of God, his, his wanting us to turn, the rebuke of God is intended to cause a person to turn and go the opposite direction. And we know that word means repentance, right? To turn and go the opposite. Not a 360, and you're right back, but 180. Turn and go the other direction. God wants us to turn. You know, when I got saved in 1995, and any of you that got saved, you might remember the changes God brought about in your life. The scriptures say, if any man be in Christ, he has a what? New creation, old things are passed away. Immediately, I knew there were certain things no one had to preach to me, no one had to tell me. I knew immediately certain things had to go. And I just started telling my friends, oh, I can't do that. What's gotten into you? What's the problem? We always go to Hooters for Wings after we play basketball. I mean, every single Saturday we did. I said, well, I'm not. I can't do that anymore. Y'all can go there if you want. I know the wings are good, but that's not why you guys go there. So just little things, God would say, no, you can't do it anymore. 
that's not, that's not you. I, I've made you a new creation. Now you have to walk differently. And by the way, those friends just drop off. They don't want to hang out anymore. They stop calling. But that's okay. You have a friend named Jesus now. What a friend we have in Jesus, scriptures say. The rebuke of God is to cause us to turn and go the opposite direction. Uh, we're to come humbly to God rather than running from God. Because our whole life we've been running from him. Now we actually run to him. Isn't it great? You're, you're, you're able now to run to God every day. And you know he'll be there waiting for you. Two wonderful promises and two byproducts that are given as a result of a genuine turning repentant that are mentioned here. If, again, if you're taking notes, in verse 23, two Uh, two wonderful promises here. The first one is the Spirit's presence. He says, if you turn at my rebuke, in other words, you listen when God says, come and be saved. Turn from your sin. You say, I will. Lord, I'm coming. I'm bowing my knee, and I'm going to do it now instead of at the end of the age when it says every knee will bow and every tongue I'm going to do it now. You turn and bow, and God says, all right, the first one here, I'll pour out my Spirit on you. Isn't that great to know? I said this looks old. This very, looks very New Testament, doesn't it? It's like Acts chapter two or uh, and the Book of John, where Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. This is a promise from God that even before the giving of the Holy Spirit, that came with the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus did not breathe the Holy Spirit on the disciples until after he had risen from the dead, and he did not send the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until after they had tarried for ten days. In Jerusalem, so it took the resurrection, the ascension, then the fullness of the Holy Spirit was poured out. But even before the fullness of the Holy Spirit was poured out, those that obeyed God and in the Old Testament still received the guidance and wisdom of the Spirit. And I don't know exactly how that works, and nor do does anyone else. But God says, in some measure, you get the guidance and the wisdom of the Spirit, even though the fullness of the Spirit had not yet come. So the Spirit's presence, a foreshadowing here, too, of what was to come with the work of Christ. The second promise here, first is the Spirit's presence, the second is the Word revealed. In um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, "But But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Um, You cannot understand the Bible by saying, I'll understand it once God proves it all to me. You say, I believe it, then you'll understand it all, and you don't have to have him prove any of it to you at that point. As soon as you say, I believe, then God will start to open up the curtains and show you what... Remember Jesus would speak in parables, and no one understood what he was talking about at times? But the ones that had a humble heart and said, Lord, I'm a sinner, I believe I need your salvation... What would happen to them? All the parables made sense. Remember the parable of the seed. Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand any of the parables? You know why that is? Almost every one of the parables deal with true conversion and false conversion. That's an that's interesting thing, isn't it? And almost all the parables deal with true conversion or false conversion. You go back to the immoral woman, you know, the, moral, the immoral woman versus the moral woman. Jesus uh, is making plain that uh, if, we ter- if we turn and repent, the scriptures will make sense to us. 
Now, the initial point of entry will make sense. That's why I said earlier, you only have have to be like a child level to understand you've sinned and you need God. That's a pretty simple deal. We all all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But once you accept that initial premise and you act on that with just simple faith and belief, all the other scriptures will start to come into focus. Isn't that great? Even passages before, you're like, what in the world is this talking about? You'll start reading, and get the Holy Spirit will say, well, that, that means this. And then you, you'll cross-reference your Bible, and it all starts coming together. The puzzle pieces start to fit. In Psalm 119, 18, it says, Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. I've been reading the Bible for 20-some years now, but I still, when I study to preach, I say, Lord, you've got to show me more wonderful things that I can share with other people. Because you're the only one that has the deep reservoir, and he will. He'll just keep showing another verse and another verse, and it makes more sense. And it, the longer I'm saved, the more I understand it. How about you? And the more you marinated in it, the more God will show you. The word will be revealed to you. It'll make sense. I will make my words known to you. And not only will you know them up here, you'll know them in here. You really will. I, I started about three or four weeks ago. It's probably been a month now. I started running again. And, and those of you who know, I, I had neck surgery, in 19, uh, neck surgery in 2009 where I had a fusion. And then ever since then, I still have one herniation in my neck. And I, so I just gave up running. Don't swing a golf club anymore. You know, just kind of. But about a month ago, I had this thought that God was telling me I could start running again. So I, I started running again recently. And I've been adding to it every day. I, I had a little bit like about 20 feet someday, 50 feet another day. And actually, my neck feels better and better the more I do it. And uh, something that I'd never been able to do, and this is where the word, when God says, I want to reveal the word to you, I never could before, on a treadmill or an elliptical or running or walking or anything, I could never do anything remotely like pray, worship, and talk to God. I could either run or I could pray, but I couldn't do both at the same time. All of a sudden, I can pray the entire time. It's just, and, and, I, and, and verses will start coming out of nowhere, verses I hadn't thought of in a long time. And, and the more I do it, God says, I'll just kind of bring the word. I'll make it alive to you. I'll put the word in you. And I really believe that there's so many areas in our life that God wants to speak the word. He wants to place his words in us. He wants to reveal the word to us. But we just have to, Hey, Lord, I, I want more of your word. I want more of you. Last couple things here as we look at this evening. Next comes wisdom's warnings. This is, this is the not, not good stuff right here. Might want to advance that. I think it... Okay, thanks. Wisdom's warnings in verses 24 through 32. These passages are really, really... Uh, I think um, someone who doesn't know how much God loves the whole world, could read these passages and get pretty upset. Wouldn't you agree? Because listen to what it says. Because you have refused, because, you've stre- I stretched out my, because I stretched out my hand and no one regarded, because you disdained all my counsel and have none of my review, I will laugh at your calamity. Oh, I'll mock when terror comes on you. Do you know God doesn't apologize for any of this? And he never will. You know, when you're the God of the universe, you set the rules. And the rule is, I'll send my son to 
drain every drop of blood so you can be saved. And if you mock his death and say, I couldn't care less, then it's a sobering thing. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. A healthy fear of God is really, really good. I mean, people have a healthy fear of lots of things that they should. I don't see most people when they go on African safari jump out of the uh, jump out of the you know the vehicle and say, "I'm going to go hug that lion." It's so cute, right? They have a healthy fear of it, and that's good. It's amazing how people have no fear of God. They'll use His name as a swear word. They'll act like, you know, Jesus used his name and he died on a Roman cross, was brutally murdered for their salvation. They still use his name like it's no big deal. God says there'll come a day that if you laugh, basically God says by rejecting, you are mocking my salvation. If you mock my salvation, someday you, the last laugh will be on you, not the other way around. And we can't say this, by the way. These are not our words to say. These words are specifically reserved for God to say. I can never say to a person, I will mock when terror comes on you. I will laugh when terror comes on you. That's not our place. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We don't have the right to say these words. But we can let people know that God, hey, he's sovereign. At the end of the day, he can say these things. We cannot. But in this passage, we see uh, several things that are, I would say, um, really, really representative of the different types of responses that you see out there in the world. And we ourselves have been guilty of. And then we see also some uh, real serious warning here about what will happen if we have these responses. The first one, if you're taking notes, we see the response of too stubborn. You disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Stubborn. It's not that most people don't know that God is perfect and that they are severely flawed. Most people know they're flawed. I, everyone does, really. But, uh, but it's not that people don't know God's perfect. They know he's perfect. They know they're flawed. It's just the humans are very stubborn anyway. We all are, aren't we? We can know what we should do and still don't do it. We're stubborn. You know what God says about stubbornness? 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is, the, is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as the iniquity of idolatry. God hates stubbornness. Israel was stubborn. It cost them dearly, didn't it? They had to wander for 40 years, and all the adults died in the wilderness. Only their kids made it in the problem. All because of stubbornness and complaining. Two things God can't stand. There's other things, but they're big ones. By the way, stubborn is, is viewed lightly by many Christians, but it's not viewed lightly by God. Some people even are proud. Some people are even proud they're stubborn. I'm as stubborn as they come. Congratulations. <laughs> Have you read 1 Samuel 15? It truly scares me. I mean, it really, really does. I, I've met a lot of Christians over the years. I'm sure you have too. I'm far from perfect. You're far from perfect. But it scares me how stubborn some professing Christians can be. I mean, just stubborn as a mule. And I'm like, how can they be this stubborn? Are they not being softened by the Spirit? Are they not being softened by the Scriptures? Christian, don't be stubborn. Be flexible, pliable. The world 
is going to be stubborn. We should not be. The second, in verse 25 here, because you disdained all my counsel and none of my rebuke, they're too proud. There's too stubborn, there's also too proud. Some have convinced themselves either that God doesn't know what he's talking about or that he really won't take any action. Both is a severe miscalculation. God knows what he's talking about, and he will take action eventually. Everyone dies at some point. Everyone wants to stand before him. It's, uh, pr- pride is just to be self-willed, just totally self-willed. My way or the highway. You know, remember Frank Sinatra? I did it my way. Yeah, a lot of people, that could be their theme song. Peter C. Moore said, Pride becomes the root of our rage against a God who condescends to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We rage against the very thing that God is saying, I'll save you from this. And yet people rage against it. I did before I came to Christ. And even after Christ, we still have a prideful, stubborn root that God is still extinguishing in our life. Dale Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. He won't send anyone away, but if you're full of yourself, God will send you away. And it may not happen immediately. He might be given a lot of grace to you know, people in this room even. That God speaks and says, you need to really see yourself in my light. Humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. You remember Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. See, this is why uh, when, we, when we look at Proverbs, we can't just read it from, it's for everybody else. Oh, the, this is for the unsaved people. Well, it is for the unsaved people primarily, but not exclusively. A lot of this applies to us. That's why he would actually, Jesus would be preaching to a lost group of people, and then he would say to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, you guys could become prideful, stubborn, or hypocritical. So the leaven of the Pharisees can rise up in us. We can be a Pharisee. I read a quote today. It said, uh, you can be doing a lot for God but not be, and yet not be in touch with God. Very true. Because we can actually be prideful and not even really realize it. The next thing, he says, because of these things, because you're too stubborn or too proud, it's going to be too late. I'll also laugh when your, uh, laugh when your calamity comes. I'll mock when your terror comes. Uh, they'll answer to me. They'll, they will call on me in verse 28 but I will not answer. I don't know exactly what that means. A lot of people try and dissect this. Does this mean that, that God can actually reach a point in a person's life where he will not, period, hear from them while they're still alive? I'm not going to make that judgment one way or another. That's up to God. All I'll say is heed the warnings. Let the scriptures stand on their own. Sometimes we try and, uh, try and uh, parse every single thing and say, well, this is what I really... Well, we know that you can't get another chance once you die. But he says here, they will call on me and I will not answer. They'll seek me diligently, but they will not find me. So there's a real warning here that a heart can become very, very hard. Because they hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. Eventually, God puts a line in the sand. And judgment will eventually fall on the one that rejects God's call and rebuke. When is it too late? I don't know. I mean, I know death for sure is too late. But uh, this is why the Bible doesn't really answer the question, when too late is other than death. 
It simply says today, 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 today don't harden your heart. Today make things right with God. Today get in the right position. Today get on your face. It doesn't say wait till tomorrow because tomorrow really could be too late. So that's the thing. The Bible implores us today, the enemy in our flesh says wait till later. You can fix that next year. You still got some things that you want to do. Too late. Too foolish, verse 29 and uh, 30. 29 and 30, too foolish. The most foolish thing a person can do, if you look at 29 and 30, they hated knowledge, did not choose the fear of the Lord. It was none of my counsel and despised by every rebuke. God's saying that multiple times. I've come many times, and the foolish thing that many will do is to despise something that's good for you and more than good for you, necessary. Let's say you get hired by utility, and you're going to work on power lines. The knowledge and the safety procedures and the uh, proper understanding of how to work with high-voltage lines, that's pretty important stuff, isn't it? You ever seen how they, they lay that plastic thing, uh, rubber, over the, over the lines? It's important to know the protocols and how you're going to work with high-voltage lines. It's really good to listen when, in training, to not fall asleep in the training class, to write and take notes, to apply everything in the training class, to wear the, wear the right equipment. You'd be pretty foolish to say, after you kind of finish the training, you know, that guy or gal who trained us in the classroom, they're just trying to make my work day longer. I'm going to cut some corners. They're just trying to mess with They just don't want us to knock off at four. Pretty foolish. A healthy fear of an electrical current is a really good thing. A healthy fear of the Lord is better. Too distracted. Too foolish, verse 29, 30. Too distracted. He finishes here with the warnings, and he says, Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way, be filled to the full with their own fancies, for the turning of the way of the simple will slay them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. Complacency turning away from things that are important. So many people are actively engaged in things that will never benefit them. Do you realize that? I mean, we've got people that are playing Xbox for like four hours a night. Can you imagine standing before God someday? And he says, so tell me about the last 20 years. Well, I did this, but you forgot a few things. I know you worked eight hours a day, but I, I've counted up four hours times 20 times a week and I'm counting hundreds, if not thousands, of hours on a gaming system or some other silly thing. Distracted. People are engaged in things that will never benefit them, and yet ignoring and completely complacent about things that actually matter. Your neighbor's unsaved. You said you didn't have time. You said you never had time. You say you constantly don't have time. And God says, I see you lots of time. Jesus said in Revelation 3.18, I counsel you, buy from me gold, refine the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, you may be clothed. Jesus said, I'm begging the church to buy gold from me, but they don't want gold, they want fool's gold. You say, well, that's your word. No, you read the first three chapters. Jesus gives a scathing report to the church. And so it's not just we look at the outside. The Lord wants us to look at us too. That's wisdom. What about us, Christian? Are we complacent? 
Well, we know the world is complacent. They're just putting it off. Saying, you know, if I, maybe, I'll, hey, I, uh, maybe I'll go to church with you someday, or maybe I'll accept Christ. Maybe. But there may be things God is asking us to do that we're equally complacent. Rand Hummel said, we seem to have time to do what we want, but not the time to do what we should. We have time to do what we want, just not time to do what we should. Very important. God views complacent. One of the most, I was talking to my wife about this, it just blows my mind. In Matthew chapter 25, I cannot get that chapter out of my mind. If there's a more powerful chapter in all the Bible, I don't know what it is. All red letter, all deals with um, the, the true saint versus the one who is on the wrong track and doesn't even know it. And Jesus says there that the one servant that's cast into hell is because he's lazy. And you're like, what? not adultery, not some grotesque sin, not serial killing. Jesus said, because you were a lazy servant, I asked you to serve me, and you said, well, I'm just going to tuck my little brick in the ground, and I'll show up on Sunday. Complacency, Proverbs chapter 1, Matthew chapter 25. It's an important thing. Last thing, though, verse 33. We finish on a high note. Wisdom's appeal. Hey, these warnings are from God. I just, I'm just delivering the mail here. So, Wisdom's appeal. Last verse, verse 33. But whoever listens will dwell safely, will be secure, and without fear of evil. God says, here's the bad news. I used to have a pastor always said, you can't know how good the good news is until you know first how bad the bad news is. God says, here's the good news. Is anyone listening? He's saying. If you're listening, God says, if you will turn and hear my rebukes, because God rebukes me a lot. How about you? I get the switch from God on a regular basis. But I'm not getting the kind of judgment that we see in those other verses because I'm responding like a horse with a jockey. Just a little swat here, a little swat here. Get my acting gear over in this area. Get my acting gear over here. Yes, Lord, I should have done that two days ago. That kind of thing. It's the kind of conversations I have with myself, but I, I know I'm really having them with God. And it's good if you hear them, you know? Your parents, you're not, you're not upset if your kids two days later start doing exactly what you were hoping they would do. You're actually glad. You're going to say, well, you know what? Since you took two days to finally do what's right, you're out of here. Now, we hear the rebuke. Whoever listens to me, Jesus says real listening is not just hearing the word, but doers of the word. And we'll dwell safely. What does that mean? We'll receive God's protection. doesn't mean that you know, we, we could die a martyr's death still, but we still have the eternal protection of God on us. We'll dwell, we'll dwell securely. What does that mean? Well, we'll have his provision. You know, I, I've seen God provide for this church in the last nine years, and especially the last three. Uh, seen him provide for some of your families, our family, a collective family. He will provide what we need. He doesn't need anyone's help either. He's fully sustaining 
All the other things that people trust in. When we get further in Proverbs, Solomon will tell you, don't trust in the things that everyone else is trusting because they actually can't give you security. You know, it's possible that you could, you could have the best life insurance policy in the world and that company go under and default and say, well, I've been pouring money into years in that house. How dare Enron do this? Now, Enron was not an insurance company. I know that. They were, they were an energy company and people had put their stock. But the same thing could happen. AIG could collapse. We'll say there's no way. Oh, yeah, they could. Anyone could. State Farm could. Anybody could. Say that's impossible. Oh, yeah. Anything could, there's many, many factors. God says, the things that we trust in, he says, you want security, I'm your security. No fear of evil. I want to get to the place, and I hope you do too, the longer I'm, I want to get to the place that we become spiritually fearless. It was just, you know, you look at the apostles, and they, they just were so filled with the Spirit, they just didn't, they didn't blink at some of the things that we run from. He wants us not to fear evil. That's why David, uh, sharing those middle schools, David walked straight. Every single Israelite was petrified of Goliath, but not David. Little 15, 16-year-old boys like, give me five rocks. Just give give me five rocks. I'll take him and his brothers out. But he wasn't saying, he he knew he couldn't do it, but he knew his God could do it. And that's the kind of confidence God wants us to give. God wants us to... Uh, be able, David wrote, who was Solomon's dad, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in your word tonight. Let us not be hearers, but doers of these things. Lord, we have a great promise here at the end that you'll give us safety, security, and we can be fearless in a world that's full of fear and primarily because we have the fear of the Lord. It's been well said, Jesus. We either fear you or we fear everything else. And we want to fear you in a holy, reverent way. In your name we pray. Amen.